Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back. And today we have a special guest. He's been on the show before. But the thing is, he's special because now he mm. is he is the author of a new book. Is this book, Mike, is this a bestseller yet? Can I say that? Can I say best-selling mm. author? Just can you speak it into existence? I think it's going to happen. I've I read hope, I hope so. Yeah. That would be you, very Mike, kind. I, I've read about 93% of the book, I think, at this point, um, o- only stopping to prepare for how we want to talk about it on this show today. And it's it's I it just out of the gate, I got to say, you did a great job with it, covering the entire history of the league in under 400 pages is pretty <laughs> impressive. Well, thank you. Yeah, that, God, distilling all this is was so hard. Uh, so I'm glad to hear that. Uh, yeah. Uh, Mike, Mike Prada from The Athletic, the new book is... Spaced Out, let me get the full title, Spaced Out, How the NBA's Three-Point Revolution Changed Everything You Thought You Knew About Basketball. And when I got to, I actually skipped ahead to get to the end. It's my 7% that I'm still missing. Mm -hmm. I have to go back and read. When I got to the end, I had this thought, and maybe we should start at the end. The thought for me was all of the changes that we've seen in the last decade that have radically happened in the last decade, that have their roots in earlier time periods that you cover beautifully in the book. And you have a ton of anecdotes that I love, and maybe we'll get into a few, about how certain teams have navigated these changes in recent years. Um, All this that's happened really rapidly, this is like the 70th year. You know, the NBA started in 1946, 1947. You had the BAA and the NBL merging. and, And now... 70 years later, you have this radical change. And the thought that I had in my head was like, this is like football, American football, discovering the forward pass after (laughs) 70 years. That's kind of what it feels like. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's it's really wild. It's like, I tell people this all the time. You know, we've talked about this era so much, just all of us. But I don't think we quite have realized that, like, it's as if the court doubled. I mean, like, imagine a court doubling and you have five people that still fill it. I think people don't really wrap their heads around what that means. It's like kind of, it's a different sport entirely. Uh, and yeah, I mean, the question of why did it take so long is such a such a fascinating, loaded question. I mean, there are a lot of like kind of specific detail factors. But the one I keep coming back to is something I said at the beginning of chapter one, which is a lot of human history proceeds this way. You know, you've got slow kind of growth in technology, and then somebody will come up with something that's super simple. Like, why don't we, instead of having the church like kind of decide what books to read, why don't we invent a printing press or something in order to write all this stuff down and send it to everybody? And then human history will just spike like this. And it's like kind of a lot of slow growth, and then there's these like short periods of like exponential growth, and then more short, and then exponential, and all that and it always looks really obvious in hindsight. I think the NBA is not that different, you know. In baseball, I, I, I kind of wonder, like, how did it take so long for baseball players to realize that we don't have to put our nine, our four infielders two on each side, right? It, you know, it's just like the acceptance of the status quo mm-hmm. is is very difficult to break, and I thought. Your storytelling, we we won't try to regurgitate it here on, on this podcast. I'll let people read the beginning of the book. But at the beginning of the book, the way you tell the history of how the three-point shot 
came to be and the perceptions around it. And the, the anecdote that really pops for me is that the board of governors meeting before <laughs> the, the, before the league actually put the shot in officially voted on the shot and it passed by one vote. Yeah. One vote or else at that point in time, we wouldn't have had the three point shot. And who knows if it would have come back in a couple of years or whatever, right. because, because the ABA had the three point shot, but they were gone at that point. In 1970, yeah. 1979, when it was put in the 1979-1980 season, uh, which you know is such a key structural and rule change that precipitated this this pace and space movement, the radical changes we're talking about in the last few years. The ABA's final season was 76, so you had a few years without a three-point shot, and then the NCAA didn't have the three-point shot. No, and, and I feel like in going back and watching old games, it's actually college coaches who are sort of more persistent about like the three point shot is ridiculous. I will not use right. such a, such a gimmick uh, to, to borrow some of the language that you quoted in the book. It's like, this is a carnival. This is a carnival gimmick that I will not be using. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to play pure basketball. And it's probably the same thing in baseball. Like you, you must have two infielders on the left side of second right. base and two infielders on the right side. And now that you're now they're institutionalizing that again. Like you have to have that. <laughs> Is that a rule? I think they're re- they're getting rid of the shift. Uh, but yeah, wow. I, the other thing you didn't mention as well is that this was only for a one year trial of the three point line. This wasn't even for a permanent uh, addition. It was sort of they messed around with it in preseason the year before, and this was like sort of the trial balloon. And yeah, fifteen to seven. The owner of the Golden State Warriors at the time, Frankie Mil, I forget how you pronounce his name, Miluani, uh, says. I'm resigning from the board. This is absolutely unacceptable. It's, it's unacceptable. The three-point shot is ridiculous. It, the ABA had it. It was carnival basketball. He even said he'd rather raise the rim to 12 feet than put in a three-point line. <laughs> uh, and it really is amazing. I mean, in hindsight, it's like, what are these like kind of simpletons thinking? But I do think that there's a lot of, first of all, there's a lot of anti-ABA sentiment. Imagine if, uh, imagine if you, someone who was like you acquired a podcast, like you beat them, like they became a part of your, like imagine you're the athletic and the New York Times acquires you, and then the New York Times is in a position where it's like we have to do, it's just, this isn't even like a apples to apples comparison, but it's just like the league we just acquired, the thing we just beat, their idea is our salvation. And yeah. if you're one of those NBA people, you're like, wait a minute, like we beat you. We like squashed you like a bug. Why are we taking your stupid idea? And I think that was a huge factor in the beginning, the chilling effect of the three-point line to start, you know, that it was an ABA thing. And then the other thing that I mentioned is they used to call it a home run shot. I mean, like how often are home runs hit in a baseball game? Not a couple times a game, maybe the entire right. game. Imagine yeah. if it was like every other pitch was a home run. Yeah. Well, that's where we are today. <laughs> right. right. So yeah. all of that. Combined with just all the people who said it sucked were like kind of the tastemakers at the time. I mean, it kind of makes sense why it didn't just come in with like open arms with all that context there. One of my first youth basketball coaches, probably in 1989, 1990, I don't know. He used, I like to hit outside jumpers. I had a little range and he used to yell all the time when I would have to do it before he got in the gym. Because when he would come in the gym, he would start yelling, no bombs. That's what he would say. No <laughs> long bombs. And he would often attach my name to the end of that, like uh, so many teachers would when I was a kid. But it, it's like, 
there were a lot of factors in play that make it interesting that the league even got a three-point line in the first place. Mm-hmm. And then you add in all the status quo stuff and you know how strange it is to kind of go against the tide. And maybe it's understandable why it took so long from a strategy standpoint for people to want to use it. Um, I think of the AFL and the NFL, another cross-sport reference where they were competing leagues in in this in a similar time period as the ABA and the NBA. Mm-hmm. And the AFL was a league that had more flair. They had more long, you know, downfield passing plays. And there was a lot of this, like, that's not the right way to play football. You're supposed to, you know, run it r- right tackle, run yeah. off right tackle. Like, that's what you're supposed to do. Right. That's how you win football games. Um, and similar thing where the ABA. So, so sometimes it's maybe these smaller leagues that can come in and disrupt right. the, the status quo. And to your point, it's weird because the NBA acquired the ABA. And so they won that arms race, if you will. Right. But it's like, actually, the ABA, just like the NFL before, had a lot of ideas that were really innovative and really exciting for fans and worked. And sometimes through that prism, it can be hard to accept them. Yeah, I mean, you see it in every industry. I mean, you see it in media. You know, there are sports just in our little pocket of this world. There are upstart independent podcasts like Thinking Basketball who come in and their impact often is that they change the way mainstream podcasts operate. But if you're if you're a mainstream podcast, you're slow to you have more leeway to take those risks in order to get yourself in the door, to get yourself relevant. And I think there was a huge element of the NBA that was like, well the ABA needed that BS gimmick to slice off relatives from us. We don't need that. We're already popular. And yeah, I think you see that in honestly every industry. So one of the reasons, again, I, I led with that sort of point in that chapter. I think I referenced a book that like about innovation and its enemies was just to kind of underscore that like, yes, in the narrow sense of the basketball, it took a long time. But in some ways, if you think about this as more of a story about psychology and social movements, this is what happens a lot of the time. And so I, I thought it was a way for me to kind of keep perspective before we kind of went into all the reasons that, because the first question so many people ask me is like, why did this take so long? And that's, that's kind of the best way I can start to answer the question. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Well, I would say after reading everything that, or almost everything that you've laid out, one theme you have is it's multifactorial. It's mm-hmm. not just about it's not just about taking a longer shot. It's not just about dribbling down the court and stopping at 24 feet and using the extra point versus playing inside the arc. It's about uh, passing and moving and and where structural sort of um weaknesses are in the defense and how you think about the rules and all that stuff. And so right out of the gate, I can't remember what chapter it is in the book, but I mean, I just, I was, I texted you immediately. I was so excited. The history of the point forward. Yeah. Right. Chapter like, four, like, chapter yeah, four, like, yeah. like getting into this idea that 
it really took until the 19, I mean, even, even just positions. And I want to talk about mm-hmm. um, something, something you say that I think applies to not just basketball today, but even at the beginning of the 2023 season where like we see Orlando playing mm-hmm. with these giant playmakers. And um, I just had a bunch of video content this week on the Cavs and they have all yeah. these big men, but they're not used in a traditional way. That was a great and, video, by the way. Thank you. I sent that um, to like multiple ones, uh, multiple writers of ours being like, you should look into this. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so, so the, the sentence that I'll pull out and I'll let you talk about it for a little bit and then we can maybe get into the point forward and wake our way through history. But like, positionless basketball is actually kind of a misnomer positionless basketball is kind of a misnomer Uh, talk about that a little more for people who hear that and say like i thought we were in the positionless revolution yeah yeah no this is a point that i feel very feel very strongly about and i'm really glad you pointed it out um it's kind of like shorthand that obscures as much as it illuminates uh it's we are positionalist when compared to what we came from, which is very positional, right? Very rigid. Like this is what a point guard does. This is what a shooting guard does. And I, in that chapter, I sort of tell like kind of the story about how we got to that specialization and then how we broke the specialization. I, I did in that way to sort of illustrate that the specialization was as much a result of social, of different movements within basketball. Like the, it's not like we started with this specialization, um, in fact, it was quite the opposite. So part of the re- reason I don't like the positionless term is that, is that it's sort of, it's a very like limited comparison. The other reason is I think positionality is not, it, it sort of implies that there is either, is a two-dimensional sort of thing. You are either always this position or you are no positions. And I tell the story of Billy Knight's Hawks um, from the early to mid 2000s that we're kind of many people see as this like kind of proto positionalist team. Uh, they Billy Knight once said famously, or maybe not so famously, six eight is the perfect height for a basketball player. Yeah, you, know, you look at what Billy Knight was trying to do, and then you look at what Toronto's trying to do. And it's like, wow, Billy Knight would have been great, just bored too soon. But the big mistake that they made is that they assumed that there was either you are a position or you are no positions. When in truth, players change positions. Players positions are there to for a structure for a five-man structure to kind of work uh and so you know if you just draft a bunch of six eight guys and you don't quite know where they're going to fit on the floor or you know what what skills they have or how they most importantly how they add up you get that atlanta hawks team that just doesn't have it's almost rigid more rigid than a point guard shooting guard small forward power forward center setup and so i just don't like the positional term because it it kind of implies something like that when i think what's really happening is and i use the example of Nikola jokic it's not that Nikola jokic is positionless it's that he sometimes plays all positions at different times within a game and a possession you know he'll move from the top of the key where he acts like a point guard He'll go down into the low post where he acts like a center. He'll go to the offensive glass and act like a power forward. He'll spot up like a, a, a shooting guard. And you need players who have the capability of together bundling the right skills to create everything you need. Uh, that's not positionalist to me. To me, that's like our positions are not are multidimensional. Like we, 
on every possession, we've got to have somebody who does these things, but they don't have to be the same players at the same time in the same s- setups. And that, to me, more accurately describes what's happening than positionalist, which is like kind of, you know, compared to 20 years ago, it's positionalist. But I, I just I just don't think I think that that term gives the wrong idea to the viewer. That's like everybody's just got to be a generalist. But no, what actually happen, has to happen is that on every given sequence, you need the right combination of skills and you need people to act like different specialists depending on the type of play. And that's kind of more what we're seeing. And to your point about this year, that also kind of creates the misnomer that small ball was what happened in the last decade, right? Where it's like the Warriors play small ball. The Heat went small with uh, Eric Spolstra and you know, LeBron, what they really did is they just almost reappropriated their size from center to other positions, right? So the Warriors had gigantic wing players because they realized that that's the space where we need size. It's not just right underneath the hoop. They make you go small. And then now you see like kind of the Cavs have been said, it's been said that they're returning to big ball or whatever. I think that's, but as you sort of illustrated, like just because you're tall, you're used in different spaces now that you may not have been used in before, depending on the overall setup of the play. So Jared Allen and Evan Mobley are capable of standing out here. And then you also have somebody who can go stand in the places they were occupying, but you can also flip that. You can flip that within the play between the plays. So it's just size just has almost nothing to do with what a position is anymore. And that's to me, that's not positionless. That's just like kind of, position positionality is now three or four or five dimensional that's what it really is to me it, it it's funny you brought that up because i have that you get to this later in the book and i have this exact note about the idea of small ball versus the idea of a twin towers or a jumbo ball but it really all does kind of fold into this conversation about what are the skills what are the positions you do a great job in the book of you know, sort of referencing like what the heck did it mean to be a guard or a forward or a center anyway, and how that kind of creates a more rigid structure. And we're not talking about pure homogenization. We're not talking about everyone being the same generalist, as you said. We're talking about something more. And you you do this throughout the book. You you have so many team examples, which I must have, you know, the, the research there must have been exhausting to always come up with these examples. But like, the Atlanta Hawks. And I think you're talking about the sort of Josh Childress, yep. Josh Smith, Marvin, Marvin Williams. Williams. Yep. All these kinds of guys that fit this kind of almost prototype of a player where you're saying we want size, but we also don't want to give up the speed and agility that comes with size. So we get a player that's kind of in this range. And ideally, he's athletic and he can jump. And, oh, it turns out that like functional stuff is important. So I'd like him to be 6'7 or 6'8, but have a 7-foot wingspan. Mm-hmm. And now I can just build a perfect basketball team. The Raptors, of course, are the modern in- incarnation of this. But to your point, just because you're doing something like that doesn't mean you're baking the same cake in, in the slightest, right? No, like, no. right? Like the, the Warriors may have had lineups with a ton of 6'6 six, six to 6'9 six, players and the Raptors today with Nick Nurse with uh, Scotty Barnes and OG Ananobi and... Uh, Vision 6'9 or whatever it's called. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Uh, all the guys that they trot out there. These are all very different teams and skill sets 
than the mid-2000s Hawks with Marvin Williams and Josh Smith and Joe Johnson. And so in a sense, uh, as a reader, it kind of reminded me, it felt like a, a bridge between a lot of the things I talk about in Thinking Basketball, the book, all those years ago. Which I cited like, a number of times, or I certainly referenced in research. I hope you got cited. <laughs> it's, it, I, I'm in there somewhere. It's, yeah. it's, uh, there's actually, there's, there's a number of uh, great authors and books and all kinds of things cited throughout, throughout Spaced Out. But like this idea that you're taking the best possible sort of basketball size, functionality, whatever. And if it's a little smaller or a little bigger, that's not what's necessarily important. What's important is, do I have the right shooting, the right Mm -hmm. passing, the right defense, the right rim protection, the right, whatever the attributes are that fit together, that's how you make a team. And so to your point, it was so fascinating to me is that you, you almost kind of lose that a little when you start saying positionless, because mm-hmm. Jokic, to borrow what Mike D'Antoni said a couple weeks ago, a few great, shows back. Great podcast. Jokic is really a point guard half the time, but then when he passes the ball to Jamal Murray, he's the point guard. And when he passes it to... Exactly. It's like, right? Like, this is what's happening on the court. When you seal someone on a switch down low... Now you become maybe what we think of as an old power forward. Like you have to use your body and you have to wedge Mm -hmm. from inside position. So there's all these things going on at the same time. And that, in a sense, combined with the understanding of how to use the space is what's shifted over the last few decades and radically in the last 10 years. Yeah, I mean, the best way I can put it is, you know, positions have almost nothing to do with size anymore. Yeah. In either direction. Uh, And the mistake that Billy Knight made is to say he looked for the size first and the skills second, you know, and it's actually got even Toronto now, like I know they have this like vision six, nine, but you know, to your point, like Scotty Barnes doesn't play like Pascal Siakam, doesn't play like OG, doesn't play like Chris. I mean, Chris Boucher is such a, he's such a physical Marvel, but really he's like kind of a three, he's a three point shooter. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, Precious Achua is a physical marvel but he's kind of like a point guard really i mean i guess you could argue with whatever but i mean you have to build teams you don't just get players that are the same size and you know for the longest time billy knight's team needed playmaking (laughs) and it's chris paul darren williams brandon roy mike conley think about all the people that were just sitting there for him that he just ignored because they weren't six eight you know and to me, that's you're almost blinder, you know, than you would be if you just had a positional hierarchy. Uh, and yeah, the, to your point about Jokic, it's exactly it. He he's changing positions, and I do think one thing that is maybe you kind of jotted this down as a theme throughout the book. But one thing that I think is kind of what happened is with more space on the floor that you could use, and with the illegal defense rule and a number of other things, it required players and teams and coaches to really think more like five-man units and individual parts. You know, your overall structure, and this also goes with how you space the floor, it all is connected, and this goes into the, the my favorite chapter, which is the vision chapter, the passing chapter, which is the players now understand, have to be able to see all nine players at once all the time because of the way the game is spread out and because it's not just man to man anymore. There's like kind of all sorts of reads and help defense and collective uh, setups. 
you can almost make a lot of different combinations of players work, but you have to think of them as a combination. You have to think about where, how does this player, if this player is here, if he's going from the point guard position on the floor. I mean, the funny thing is that the word position, like positions exists because in 1892, James Nathan just lined up three players in the middle. They're the centers, three players by the bat, their own basket, the guards, three players by the opponent's basket, the forwards. I mean, they literally refer to actual positions on the floor. But it, now what it is is if you're going to have a guy 6'9 over here, you've got to have your other guy who's smaller over here instead. So it, every relationship on the floor is contextual now. you know. And I, I think that's kind of the big theme of what has happened to the league is it's now – obviously it's still about individual talent, but so much more than ever before, it's about how the pieces add up. Yeah. So So – Naismith started with nine players in that example. You don't adjust your phones or your radio. That's correct. Uh, but then, then you get to five, and another player you cited that just um, gave me the giggles was like Dutch Dennert and the original Celtics. This is, we're talking like 1920s and 1930s, mm-hmm. deep history basketball. Yep. And, and the connection to today for me, there's actually a through line where you end up with this idea of the center the language in the old papers and articles turns into the pivot a lot. We're going to run our offense through the pivot as like a literal area where there can be rotation or turning around this central hub of offense. And the irony to me is that um, Seth Partnow coined the term heliocentrism to describe these sort of like one-man offenses where so much is revolving around what they do. That's more like a a metaphorical revolution, right? Because sometimes those guys will, as you talk about um, team examples, like James Harden's Rockets, sometimes you'll give Harden the ball, you'll give Luka the ball, and the four players will be relatively stationary out on the outside of the court. Whereas someone like Jokic or Bill Walton in the 70s or what those original Celtics in, in in the... books that they'd write to talk about here's an offensive here's the scientific offensive style of the 1930s it's like throw the ball to the big man around the free throw line and then let players swarm and move and cut and that is going to create chaos and I feel like this season especially at the beginning of the year we're almost moving more in that direction than ever before where whoever has the basketball at that point on the floor, like literal, the literal position they catch it on the floor it could be a center, a power forward. It doesn't even matter. Mm-hmm. Just turning and looking to run these three-man actions, to run handoffs, to have the cutting, the blend of all this stuff, to me, has a through line that's like a hundred years old. Yeah, which we've 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 moved away from, and in and in a physical sense, that's heliocentrism. In a physical sense, yeah. <laughs> right, the basketball is moving around right. that center hub. So it's a it's really interesting and gets to size and playmakers, and you know that's where you get in the book like this thread of the the early big playmakers starting in the 1980s because there was a big period where it's like you give the ball to the little guy and you have him bring it up and he initiates the play and that's that's how you play basketball get as close to the hoop as possible after that yeah i love that you said that this is sort of a back to the future moment for the league uh back to the distant past because one of the points i make in the book is that james i think that today's game is more in line with what james naismith thought it was going to be and i i cite this guy john mcclendon uh 
who is uh he coached for a number of years at uh hbcu schools he was a uh naismith disciple and he basically had this idea of like everybody's got to get up the court in four seconds well boy doesn't that sound familiar uh, and he was around in like the 50s but i think that this was never supposed to be a station to station roughhouse like kind of physical style of game it was always meant to be this free flowing and fluid thing and so i think what you're getting i mean original intent doesn't matter really for like kind of what's what's the better version of the sport but this is very much the original intent to your point and there really is just a choreography to how players move now off the ball that like it's just so if you don't watch for it it just hides in plain sight um and yeah like you said it's it's like uh, the pivot, every it's almost like every port on the floor is some form of a pivot because even what you've talked so beautifully in that Cavs video about these three man actions on the ball but what's also happening is that when someone gets to a certain point on the floor the two other players have certain choreographed movements that they make uh this is a subject of chapter 8 uh in particular where do you remember this whole movement that Mike Budenholzer was drawing the boxes on the court for where players should stand? And it sort of created this false perception that, like, nobody cut anymore. It's actually yeah, the just – Yeah, you just stand there. In in the box practice facility, they – and other teams did this as well. Uh, but you talk about – Still do, uh, by one the way. Of, yeah, and and one of I think one of the great narrative threads, actually, is that Bucks team yeah. where you start with Jason Kidd and his coaching and go all the way through the changes there into Budenholzer coming in, uh, what happens in the playoffs in 2019, in the bubble in 2020, and then finally culminating in the championship in 2021 with Drew Holiday coming in, both on offense and defense. I think that was one of the sort of coolest narrative threads combining all these ideas. But but to your point, and, and I'll let you continue, like you're talking about in practice – we can draw boxes on the court to either remind the players or to gamify things in terms of where we want to stand, how we want to space. But as outsiders, as fans, as analysts, as broadcasters sometimes, that makes it seem like everyone's stationary and that's the goal. And that's not quite what's happening. No. Right? No, I mean, I have this quote from Stan Van Gundy from uh, our friend Mo DeKeel's story a while back being like, spit cutting is a dying art. And I was just like... That's that couldn't be further from the truth for me. I mean, like it's the complete opposite. But you can understand that when you say, "Here is a outline of a box that has solid lines on all sides, and this is where you stand." You can understand how it feels like a little bit of a, a prison, <laughs> right? You can understand the the imagery, uh, and I think that's one reason why the Bucks between the twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one season, one of the things they did was instead of having those four boxes, I think they were literal squares one in the corner one in the the deep slot on both sides which is way up by the three-point line they instead drew the one that got the most attention was they had a a long narrow one on the baseline for the dunker spot which is its own sort of fascinating new wrinkle that's coming back into the league over the last three years the less the, the sort of lesser less publicized change was that they made the corner box longer so it took up I believe all the way until the moment on the arc where it arcs again. Uh, the break. Yeah. I, and so the implication there was you've got a lot more freedom. Like you've got to, the movement you make within this box to kind of create a passing lane is really important. And I think that helped reinforce for a lot of teams that 
these are landmarks. These are not literal standing spaces. This is like it, they're maps. They're, it, this where it's almost like you're mapping the court. You're creating a road, and then that kind of makes it easier for you to imagine when do I do a forty-five cut from the wing to the basket? When do I lift from the corner to the wing, drift to the corner? You know, when do I kind of get to this position? When do I cut back door from the baseline to the basket? Once you start to imagine those boxes and landmarks instead of literal, like, kind of prisons almost, um, it's just easier to cut. And I think that's why you're seeing this renaissance in cutting. There's sort of, for the longest time, people thought of cutting as, like, while you're running your play, you move in certain places and you make some reads as sort of the setup form of the play. What this has done is that now once you create the advantage, there is an entire choreography and by the way, like defenses have gotten way better at anticipating this too. Like this element of the game, I just don't think existed back in the day because it was just a very different style of play. And now, I mean, if you really just watch like kind of the court, like guys are just moving in certain patterns, like all over the place. And once you start to look away from the ball, you really notice it. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Okay, let me let me jump in on that because I actually have this written down as one of the most fascinating elements of the book to me. Awesome. I thought you did I thought you did a brilliant job of articulating what I'll call a sort of tactical arms race. Mm-hmm. And so if we think about uh, you know, we, the three point shot comes in in 1980, all kinds of things happen. Let's jump ahead to getting rid of the old illegal defense rules, allowing the zone defense. 2001. For 2001 people. that allows that 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 sets the table for the kind of dynamics we've seen where you maybe you want to overload a side maybe you want to try to create an empty pick and roll you get rid of this isolation basketball over time and of course the 2005 Suns and Mike D'Antoni and Steve Nash come in and you've got seven seconds or less but you make a brilliant point in the book which is that because it was new or quote-unquote new, because this was something that teams weren't doing or hadn't done for a long time, the way the Suns were playing did not require them to have a a ton of counters to the defense because the defense was reactionary Mm -hmm. at that point in time. The defense was like, holy moly, you're going to have all your players stand behind the three-point line and run a pick and roll with Steve Nash, who can pass basketballs out of his ears in his sleep, and Amari Stoudemire is just this incredible partner coming downhill into space because now we have this dual threat how do we handle the pressure of guarding the pressure you're creating inside the arc with the pick and roll and the shooters outside the Mm -hmm. arc that's also high value so that was new 
Yep. All that was new in 2005. And as you fast forward through time, and I'll let you um, kind of put some color on this as you as you see fit, but the short of it is as you fast forward over the years, each time the defense comes up with a way to counter this burgeoning strategy that the offense comes up with that's successful, then the offense builds a counter in. Yep. And then the next step is the defense builds in a new counter. And we have this arms race that has now got us to a point in 2023 where you don't run spread, prick, and roll and stand with four guys stationary outside the arc unless you're Philadelphia. Um, <laughs> I was but, just but, about to say. <laughs> so, so, so for the not rest of the Not even Dallas team, does that. Not even Dallas does that. In fact, Dallas, I just started watching Dallas in the last few days, catching up on them, and they're, they got all kinds of wrinkles that mm-hmm. they're putting in, and it's still built around Luka, but it's like, what happens if we start the possession with Luka in the pinch post area, which mm-hmm. is not this low post, it's over near the elbow, yep. and then we can kind of simulate or mimic other advantages we can create with the spread pick and roll, but based on movement or misdirection or whatever. So the reason teams are doing this is part of the arms race, because defenses cue into something else. So I just thought you did a great job of sort of illuminating how the way the Suns did it in 2005 or even the way the Rockets did it in 2018 is going to be different than what we're seeing in 2023. And for my money, it's just produced this like more and more beautiful game basketball that just gets sexier and sexier as the years go by. I mean, I love it. That's why I I wrote a book. I mean, it's definitely harder to follow. I'll give a casual fan that. I mean... Part the, there was an asymmetry for many many years before the illegal defense rule. The way I put it is, the offense could go where they wanted, outside of just plopping the lane for three seconds, and the defense couldn't. Yeah, that's a pretty serious handcuff to put yeah. on the defense. Like all these esoteric rules about where you're not allowed to go, and then the offense. I mean, where can they just can't have three seconds? That's it. Yeah, that was it. So I mean, to me, that was if you're a defensive player. And you're even thinking in terms of, uh, you're thinking in terms of what do we do when they create an advantage? Like ha- you have to think reactionary because literally that's what the rules were. You could not do this in advance, and so to me, it's just totally understandable that that takes a while for defenses to wrap their heads around. And I think it's actually kind of interesting where this has gone um, defensively, where for a while, you know, for a little bit of time, you start with kind of the Thibodeauian Detroit Pistons like overload. Um, I talk about the Pistons as kind of like a key figure in tra- this transitional era. This is like this is like Larry Brown era Pistons mm-hmm. with the Wallace brothers and Tayshawn Prince and that. that yeah, team. so they're the one of the first. We're like, wait a minute. So we can just play man to man, but we can just instead of having to guard uh, Gary Payton at the three point line, we can send a third guy to this side. Oh, that 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 totally. Uh, that's how Shaq didn't get the ball at all in that finals, huh? And then you get to Thibodeau, but what one of the things that happens like as more people adopt the Suns, and I tell the story of LeBron and Wade kind of breaking the Pistons, and then sort of their battles with Boston and then Dallas in the 2011 finals and all of that, one of the things that happens is defenses start to think, well, if we don't rotate at all, we're okay. Okay, we'll give up the uh, 16-foot jumper, but that's better than having to be forced to rotate at all. Let's just not rotate. That's essentially what drop coverage began as. And the Pacers kind of emerge as this foil to Miami, who is doing the complete opposite, which is like, let's just rotate all the time because we're fast. Um, and then that, of course, leads to the Bucks. 
the thing that breaks that thing down is one players start to teams start to play faster and two like kind of the pull of three pointer the math doesn't work anymore and so then i think that's where switching comes into play where it's like we're getting the same idea of no rotation but it's just another way to do it and then i think first with houston and with how much they spread out with their one-on-one play they were kind of the blunt way that you went about switching but then there's also just also the warriors with this ability to cut and move you end up turning the the act of switching i think the way i put it is you take on both the assets of all the other pick and roll coverages but you also take on its liabilities all of them like you could theoretically have the problem of a drop where you're not switching high enough and they shoot over you. But you could also have the problem of a trap where you don't switch quickly enough at all and they slip back door. So what's happened now over the past couple of years, as we've kind of had this arms race and as teams just took more and more territory and made you guard it. I mean, Houston's basically what they did. It was just like, let you just have to guard way more space. That's kind of was their, their big hack, you know, Let's shoot threes from well beyond the line, not just right on top of it. That was like kind of a – I remember when they started doing that in 2017, I was like, oh, this is interesting. Mm, uh, with yeah. like Ryan Anderson and Eric Gordon and just those 30-foot threes. Um, just it, that extra that extra few feet of stand – you know, instead of standing at 25 feet and waiting for the ball, standing at 29 feet. Right. And, you know, now you're an extra step or two away on the closeout – and the ripple effects of that, and you, and you talk about this throughout the book with all these examples, it's not just about spotting up and standing in place. It's, you know, the downstream coverage of a cut, as we just talked about, or, you know, maybe you swing it to Eric Gordon, and because that closeout is a little bit longer and you're moving a little bit faster, now Gordon puts it on the deck and attacks the closeout, and the defense is in rotation, and mm-hmm. you got your own problems. So, yeah, yeah it, it almost doesn't even matter that you shoot 34% on that shot instead of 36%. It's it's this same effect of, you know, manipulating the defense to try to gain an advantage. Yeah. Yeah. And uh and what's happening now I think is really interesting is schemes in general are becoming more five man even more so than they were 5 years ago where there's a lot more like kind of paint packing collectively. Uh and because of that we're also seeing a lot more zone. There's everyone's like, oh my god, zones back in the league. To me, it makes sense. Like, if defense is more about, you know, there's low man rotations and helping on the nail and you know gapping between shooters. I mean, is really asking them to play a zone like that that different? I mean, it's not that hard. Everyone's like, wow, their teams are playing so many different defenses now. To me, it just makes sense once you sort of break away from defense as a one on one game until we have to rotate to like we are proactively clo- closing space as a unit. It's just the same thing, just maybe slightly more extreme. Uh, so, yeah, the point you made about the shooting percentage is something that um, I definitely wrote about as well, which is if everybody acts like a 40% shooter, even if they aren't a 40% shooter as a, def- as a defender, why does it matter? Like, why does it matter if someone's actually a 40% shooter? You you have to guard them the same way. They They don't self-select anymore, you know? So I think that's created a whole lot of challenges for players on the fly that I think people are only starting to understand. So let me ask you about this um, because I got the sense in reading it that you had even more to say uh, than what you wrote in the book. There's this idea that the mid-range shot has gone away 
And as you as you mentioned in the book, and many listeners know, a lot of that is everything we're talking about today, where instead of running an action that leads to an 18-foot jumper, or instead of spotting up inside the three-point line, and you, know, you go to YouTube and you watch these old games, and it's really weird to see role players waiting to receive the pass from the star in the post, or you know, LeBron James in 2004 coming off the pick and roll and kicking it out to Eric Snow for a 19-foot shot (laughs) instead of a three. So a lot of that is what changed, you know, getting more threes up compared to more twos in the old days. But you have an observation that maybe one of the reasons that so many guys are lamenting the loss of the (laughs) mid-range, right? You saw that that footnote, didn't you? (laughs) Oh, I'm the footnote king, man. Um, Mike's laughing because he knows where I'm going. So many stars who are now in media who cover the game today would be the players who would be taking these mid-range shots because, in a sense, what's happened is in the old days... Three-point shooting was reserved for the select few players on the court who were kind of adorned as being willing to take a long three. Dikembe Mutombo and Shaquille O'Neal can't go out there and shoot threes without getting some heckling or the coach being like, what are you doing? But, you know, Byron Scott could take a three. Nick Anderson could take a three. Dennis Scott can take a three. Now we live in an era where... Most players take threes, and it's only the select few <laughs> players that can take the mid-range. Exactly. And usually the mid-range guys are stars. And so, right, like <laughs> all these guys watching are like, come on, more mid-range. Let's go. Yeah, they'd be the the point of uh, the, the theory is a crack theory. That's why it was only a footnote. But my <laughs> crack theory is that the people who commentate on basketball tend to be the people who would be allowed to take mid-range shots in this current setup. It'd be as if you had uh, – it was 2025, and – Every team's color commentator was DeMar DeRozan. Obviously, DeMar DeRozan <laughs> is going to be like, the mid-range is such a valuable area. It's right there. Right. They're, or, they're or, giving him the pull-up. It's right there. Yeah, or no. Chris Paul. But, like, they, they they take mid-range shots because they're good at them. So, like, why would – this is, this is, like, kind of – to make a serious point, like, on something silly here, is, like, this is another example, I think, of you have to conceive of this sport as a – five-man operation in a way that you just didn't before it always was but because of the kind of the way the illegal defense rule worked and whatever it very much became like the point of the five-man group was to create a one-on-one matchup you know and you could do that by changing the floor having exploiting this asymmetry that you could go where they wherever you wanted but the defense couldn't i mean have you ever watched like one of those like 19 late 80s early 90s games with the warriors and you have like Manute Bowl standing forty feet from the hoop, and Tom Tolbert just so that Mark Eaton can't stand, can't help on a Mitch Richmond post up. I mean, like, how insane yeah. does that Nin- look 19- in hindsight? <laughs> 1989, 1989 playoff series, first round, Jazz coming off their run where they took the Lakers to seven in 1988, and you know Carl Malone's a star now, John Stockton's a star. This team's poised for success. And they get to play the mad scientist Don Nelson, <laughs> and I think that was a four-game upset. Three, the Warriors. three zero, I think. It, it was uh, it was not a good look for Utah, but a lot of it was because of some of these hacks or tactics where you get you get Manute Bull and Tom Tolbert creating spacing because of the uh, the three-point shot. But but I think that theme that runs through the book about the shift from more individualism and and certainly you know that has had its heyday in different forms to me 
I almost feel like Hero Ball peaked in the 2000s as the waters were shifting mm -hmm. to create the environment for everything we're talking about today, which in a way is kind of kind of ironic. Yeah. Um, but but the if you just go back to like the 80s or the 70s or some of the limited 60s footage we have, the idea that one-on-one -on -one matchup, it's like, when do you help? You help when your teammate has a breakdown. Yes. And so if you're not a great help defender, you don't notice the breakdown. And if you're considered a good help defender, you notice the breakdown. Compare that to where we are today. Today, there's an expectation that you really can't stop anyone one-on-one. -on -one. And when you introduce a screen then just by the rules, it's extremely difficult not to have a breakdown, even in that two-on-two. -two. So at all times on the floor, defenders are trying to think a step ahead about how do I position myself? How do I funnel the ball into a particular space? You know, you mentioned gapping earlier. We can sit in someone's, we can take an extra step and move into someone's driving lane and anticipate and be proactive that way. But I mean, all of these actions are, are kind of designed to work together, to your point, mm -hmm. in a way that they weren't quite as much 20 years ago, and they really weren't at all like 40 years ago. Um, even when the league didn't have stars averaging 36 points and 12 assists a game, you didn't have the heliocentrism, but it was you had teams trying to play more together on offense, but defensively, so, so you said it's a five-man game. I almost think of it now as a 10-man. Absolutely. Right? The, yeah. It's the, the whole dance working together, mm -hmm. following the ball in these choreographed ways. That, that's, that's in many ways been the biggest difference. And it's come largely in part from getting this space. And I know you might have something to say on that, but we, we have to get to passing because that's the, fu that's oh, the final man. stage, right? Well, it wasn't the final stage of the book, but man, uh, I, I knew you would love this chapter. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's one of my favorites because I, I've, and I'll let you riff, but I, I just feel like the space, the thing it's done as someone who constantly goes back and watch games from older decades is as you move into the 2010s in the last few years, you create more opportunities for passing lanes, passing windows and open space for players to cut into that area and receive a pass. And it's really just created uh, a passing revolution more more so than the positionless revolution we're, we're in the like yeah. a golden era of passing because of this when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I mean, it occurred to me, you know, I was watching old Magic Johnson highlights and he has um, so many great ones. There's just one I remember where he, he like turns his head and he like almost like kind of eyes wide open. Yeah, you're you're mimicking one of the ones he did. I forget what that who that was against, the like kind of with the hands and kind of going behind to the other side and just how magical pun intended <laughs> those passes were and then i watched like a lot of these games and it's like there's so many there's so many examples of players just like either exaggerating the no look or just not looking at all like it's almost like every possession there's a no look pass i mean maybe a slight exaggeration but not that much of one if you really watch these eyes 
Uh, and I was sort of wondering, like, wait a minute, like, how is that possible? I know I, I did a piece a number of years ago on John Wall and the Jump Pass, where this cardinal sin of sports, this one that, frankly, commentators, like, whenever there's a turnover, you always hear, can't ever jump to pass, can't ever do that, that's a cardinal sin. John Wall, like, turned it into a weapon because he could jump higher than everybody, so he would jump, and he would, like, twist his head around to the person he thought he wanted the defense to think he was passing to, but all along he was passing to somebody else, and he used, like, his hang time as a weapon. I just kind of wondered... To me, like that was kind of the, one of the most profound things I had noticed about the game over the last four or five years. It's just how many more of those we have, and from not just point guards, you know, from all sorts. So that took me down this rabbit hole, and it it kind of occurred to me two things. One, this is sort of a no duh point, but I think it does need to be said. You have more space on the floor, the same number of people, they're spread out more. You can see more stuff. You know, that that's just sort of a very obvious. But what I think really happened is because everybody has access to that same i talked about it earlier everybody's got to read the floor as a single unit more so than as a bunch of individual relationships you know because of the way pick and roll coverages work because of sort of the space on the floor and all the movement that's happening all the way around you you're going to be lost if you try to read any of it individually like there's just no chance and i actually go deep into the academic vault on this one, kind of looking at vision studies, how people, how quickly do people see certain things in their environment and what is the mechanism by which they actually see and how is vision learned behavior? The the key study I cite was a 1994 study by a guy named Philip Kelman. Um, he was an air, he was a social science, cognitive scientist, but he was also a, wanted to be an airplane pilot. And he was doing all this training and he would get up in the air and he'd go with instructors and his instructors would just literally be like, do this. And he would have no idea what they were talking about fast enough because he literally couldn't see what they saw. And it drove him nuts. Like he was studying super hard and he could never figure out why they could see what they, what he couldn't and how they could act on it. And he thought like, how do I get other people at that point? So there's a number of dials on a plane, right? I guess it's sort of how you determine like, where you go there's like for air pressure for movement or whatever he would he developed this model where instead of teaching like a bunch of novice pilots or a bunch of experienced pilots he did in both samples how to read each of the individual dots and know what they meant like say hey this dot means this this dot means this and sort of go with in theory and then just kind of hope that that knowledge would eventually translate over experience he said Okay, there are, I think, eight dots. I forget if there are eight or seven. I have to look up the book. There are however many dots. They, the sum of these eight dots can mean, in 90-something percent of the cases, mean one of these seven action items. And we're going to kind of take you through a model. We're going to say, we're going to show you here are the patterns, and you have to guess which of the seven these this collective pattern of eight dots refers to. And they did that training for about an hour, and then he quizzed them uh, after that. And all the people who had never flown before were just as accurate on this as the experts before they went through this program. He called this perceptual learning. Essentially, you are you have like a spatial awareness of the board itself, and that's what you're acting on. So you don't. It's not that you don't need to know what each of them individually means, but you're now looking at all of these dials in relation to each other. And I just thought that was like a perfect metaphor for what's happened to basketball now. 
where because it's players are coming off a pick and roll or coming off a screen, they're not just reading their own defender or even the help defender or even the guy behind them. They need to kind of contextualize the other relationships altogether so that it's almost like when when I come off this screen, if this guy does that, that means this guy is open. But if he does this, that means that guy is open. And it's all kind of contextual interdependent relationships. And because the game is spread out more, because the three-point shot is what it is, because we have access to more video where we can kind of essentially go through like exercises of our own in very heightened specificity. Everybody just kind of knows the mapping of the floor better. And the reason that connects to no look passes is now they, the whole point is we're not trying to beat people who can't read what I can read. Cause everybody kind of has a certain high level of baseline of the mapping of the court. What we need to do is we need to make them think I'm reading it one way, but then actually I'm reading it the other. And that's why the no-look pass has really exploded. It's almost like that's the tool to beat defenders who are just more used to mapping the entire court as a whole. It's like the best way to trick a bunch of experts is to create an illusion, and that's kind of what's happened. And I just thought it was like a perfect analogy for basketball now. And Yeah, that chapter took a long time to write. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a great chapter. You have another... Um fantastic metaphor that applies about reading morse code and things like that but Mm -hmm. the the thing that i think you build to is these passes now they're more regimented in Mm -hmm. a way yeah you've got okay spread pick and roll how does this work well if this low defender does this then i know my guy's going to do this if they don't help then i have a pocket pass to the roll man if someone's in the dunker spot i'm going to look for the lob lobs in and of itself i mean you just mentioned no look passing we could probably talk about lobs for 20 minutes yeah because they just really didn't exist in basketball until who i i don't know i want to say at least the 80s you could see some you could see some before then only right? and mostly only also in like fast break situations fast i mean break and, yeah you look at all the gary payton sean kept lobs like how many of those are in a half court set right Shaq, of course had had the spin counter lob from the corner that was one that was very common but you know wherever they first started getting thrown you know they were there but it just wasn't a really common thing to see and now it's part of this regimented passing vocabulary to, to borrow from our friend Jay Kyle Mann who likes to describe all this chunking and grouping of mm-hmm. information so the offense knows this information and the defense knows it and they each have rules and it's kind of like this read and react cat and mouse game and to your point uh, a couple years ago I came up with like the five tools of of passing and I don't know if there's five and I don't know if this is comprehensive but it was things like speed of delivery and anticipation because again goes back to defensive rotations but it also connects to this idea of like the passing revolution a lot of great passes you know in the history of basketball you you need to anticipate what's happening you can't pass reaction you can't have a reactionary pass no let's put it that absolutely way. i mean the whole point the whole point of a great pass is like why why do you does it exhibit so much joy for the viewer? Like there, you talk to almost any basketball fan, they'll say, "I just love great passes," and the reason is because it's the same reason why we love magicians. Um, we see something, and they just they had they they show us something that we did not see, and that's right, that's right. kind of the visceral joy of passing is exactly that. You have to be able to read something 
<laughs> you have to trick the viewer essentially into thinking like I thought I could see everything I could see, but then you saw something else. I mean, that's why we love passing. It's the same reason. So, so that's the manipulation part. That was where I was going. Is that like one of those tools that I think you get to when you get to higher and higher levels is is different ways to manipulate the defense. So it makes sense that the no look is one of those ways you're going before they expect it, or you're turning ahead your head a certain way, or you reference John wall and the ability to jump and use that. Um, another one that just didn't exist really is the sort of floater lob where mm-hmm. you're Trey young and you're coming down the lane. Harden was maybe the, the person who really perfected this and your mechanics in terms of taking the ball from your live dribble off the floor and moving into a jumping motion as you pick the ball up and move it upward are the same whether you're shooting or you're throwing a little six-foot or eight-foot lob to the big man in pick and roll or in the dunker spot. These just didn't exist. Now they're all regimented. Yeah. And so, so, and you talk about this in the chapter, I won't give it away, but like the idea that we keep getting a higher and higher and higher baseline then demands that the better and better passers have more and more tricks and there's more complexity mm-hmm. makes makes my job basically uh, allowed to exist because you have all these sort of like chess match dynamics taking place all over the court mm-hmm. that you only notice when you stop and rewind the tape like 10 times and you're like oh my last possession he did this and this possession he did that yep it, it, it's just uh i mean it's absolutely amazing yeah it's contextual cueing i think is the way i put it there's a great study about this where uh, that I cite where even if you create a decoy, like a pattern uh, from a spatial alignment that doesn't exist, people will kind of read the patterns right away. You know, and so that just means you can manipulate those patterns even more. Yeah, no, it's um, it's really remarkable what's happened. I mean, to your point about the floater lob thing, the other sort of piece of that is that if you're Trey Young or Luca is the guy that's in my head about this, but they're, they're both amazing at it. You don't actually have to decide what what you're going to do until the last possible moment, right? And I think, yeah. but you haven't read the movement chapter, which is chapter eleven. But in a way, that's essentially what's happened to dribbling. Is that yeah. it, it, if you're wondering, like, kind of why it always looks like players are traveling, it's because they've learned to kind of view movement and dribbling the same way, where it's like I really have two point nine 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 steps, and then I have to decide what I want to do. And so all those right. all that moment. All that time that you would normally have had to already make a decision already, you can kind of procrastinate on your decision and just read the defense or read everything the whole way until the last possible moment. It kind of creates a totally different way of moving too. So, yeah, that uh, nine chapter nine and chapter eleven is the one I'm talking about. Those are my two favorite ones to write. I would say. So here's the big question about passing for me. Uh, I don't know what the answer is. We're just we're going to get our philosophical pipe and and pack it and smoke it together. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Does this mean if if weaker players in the league, if you can t- take Paolo Bancaro and Franz Wagner and Franz has th- these guys have some passing chops, so we'll see where it gets to. But if you can take players at a much lower baseline and say, you're going to be heavy decision makers and we're going to give you the encyclopedia of passes that you need to make. We're going to run pick and roll. You're going to need to get down into the paint, hit the dunker spot, spray to the corner. You got to read the low man, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's like the baseline. The baseline for passing is getting higher and higher and higher. Are the great passers less valuable relative to the Mm. league because there are so many good passers? Or are they actually more valuable 
because it's like one of those weird paradoxical things where so many guys are solid, but for you to cross a threshold gives your team an advantage that other teams can't access. And that's mm. maybe what we're seeing with the Luka Doncic's of the world. The way I would answer that question is the answer is neither. They are just as valuable because here's the way I would put it. It's a cop-out. No, it's, it's not. A, it's listen, a, it's a listen, cheat. this is not a cop-out. <laughs> Let's say that everybody in the league was between a 1 and a 10 in terms of passing. To have a 10 versus when most of the league is a 5 is proportionally you're twice as good a passer, right? What's happened now is that instead of it being a range of 1 to 10, it's a range of 100 to a or 100,000 to a million to a million and most people are at 500,000. If you're in a million passer, you're still twice as good as a 500,000th. So proportionally, okay. the proportions have not changed. It's so just you that think everybody that... is better. And I would put it this way, like to the point about Bancaro and Wagner, what's also happened, and I have this pet theory that like all these rookies are coming to the league more like kind of ready to play right away. Every each of these drafts, the reason is because they're just more spaced out native. You know, they've, they played this game, not just, it's not like they come to the league as blank slates on these sorts of things, you know, they don't have to unlearn as much because their whole playing experience is with this style of play. So I think that rookies are more prepared now than ever before to play in the league because they they almost have less to learn. So Paolo Bancara and Franz Wagner already know how to do all this stuff because of their experience at lower levels where all of basketball is becoming this. So, yeah, not a cop-out answer. The answer is the same, but because of that. It's essentially everybody is great, is exponentially better but so are the the rank and file is just as exponentially better as the the geniuses oh i like that i like that spaced out native idea though because the the developmental and you talk about this in the book but just like the developmental focus on players we're so much smarter we have so much more technology and the guys coming in now are a generation of players who understand not just the different rules and to shoot threes and things like that but if you're if you're 610 you know you're Franz Wagner you're seven feet tall you're Nikola Jokic you're not told you know don't shoot from the outside go stand in the post and learn to learn a hook shot and a drop step you are playing with everyone else and so that's the size thing the size you know it's almost it's less about the size and more about the skill and then what are the skills well the skills are back to your airplane pilot they're they're constantly being tested on this particular thing that says we're gonna have five guys spaced out we're gonna have these passing angles we're gonna have the low man excuse me we're gonna have the low man come over Mm -hmm. and pick and roll and so they're they're growing up learning these things whereas we're actually we still have a league that was largely trained in these old ways that's still hanging around less and and less of one but yeah yeah, yeah, I'm I'm really fascinated to see where we are. Yeah. And I, one in, thing say, I want five years. Yeah, one thing I want to say on that point, and the big motivation for me to write this book was that my belief that we are we were missing why this era was so significant historically. I think it'd be very easy for somebody to look at this movement and say, "Well, sports happens in cycles. We always de- develop." Like, are you aren't you just saying that the people who enter the league? eight years from now, like, are going to be equally prepared, you know, because the, the sport will change a lot over the next eight years. And my, my main point in writing this book is no. This is a unique moment in, in history 
we will have changes. The game will change, but it will be so much more incremental compared to what happened because you are literally doubling the court. That's what's happened. And unless they get rid of backcourt violation, I don't think we're going to have a similar movement where the court or like they get rid of the Phil Jackson's long, you know, long desire, like kind of let's widen the court dimensions literally. I just don't think we're going to have anything like this doubling of the playing surface that has occurred over this generation. So, yeah, I think the league will change a lot over the next eight years. I think there are incrementally, there are some very interesting ways that has already changed over the last three. But I do not think we will have something happen as fundamental as what we have had happen since 2013. The name of the book, again, spaced out. The how the NBA's three point revolution <laughs> changed everything you thought you know about basketball. Mike Prada, thanks so much for it's beautiful. It's a beautiful book. Look at this beautiful cover Man, the, right here. Thank with you. S- Steph Curry taking a, a twenty eight foot fadeaway. Yeah, three. I gotta give uh, I gotta give credit to Triumphs Illustrators on that one because they nailed that one on the first try. You know, really wanted to get something that fit the theme of the book, and they just they just found it right away. And I was when I first saw that cover, I was like. Do not change a thing. That is perfect. Uh, so credit, all credit to them on that. That was not me. What else are you working on? What else do you want to plug? You got stuff going at the athletic that that people can check out. Where you know what's what's on the horizon for twenty twenty three? Right now, probably not a not a lot of bylines. Uh, I'm doing editorial work, working behind the scenes. You know, helping a lot of our writers get better. I have a couple writers that are directly I'm working with more directly than others, but. Yeah, you know, my goal is that all our stuff is better because I'm there, you know. So you might not see stuff that I work on a lot, but it's kind of happening behind the scenes, you know. And so we'll see if that changes down the road. But for now, like, I'm just thrilled to help all our writers kind of conceive of better stories, to execute better stories, do better work. And so if you think the, the NBA content, the athletic is getting better, hopefully I play a small part in that. That's my goal. So that's about all I'm really working on other than book promotion stuff. So we'll see. And the se- the sequel for 2029. The um, sequel, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, thanks thanks so much for taking the time and uh, great great job on the book. I really appreciate well, it. Well, thank you for everything you do. I mean, so much of what you do is like an inspiration for this. I've told you this before. So thank you for having me and thank you for the great work that you do uh, in this space. If you want to support the this show and that work, check out patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. We just launched a new site this season, thinkingbasketball.net, so you can access daily leaderboards for players and teams and things like that. In addition to all our extra content, we have a monthly live Q&A in our Discord community, which is really fun, patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Hope you enjoyed this one. Thanks, as always, for listening all the way through. And wherever you are, I hope you're having a great day. 